I know it's been a hiatus, but it's holidays, and I have a day job, and, and, and Lou has a real job. Yeah. So <laughs> we can't just, you know, do this at the drop of a hat, but we are – I'm banging the table and putting my foot down. We're going to do go, something. We are uh, – I'm lining up some stuff. We're actually going to try to get back to going in January because we have had feedback mm-hmm. where people want us – to. people want more content, Lou. Oh. The people want more they content. They want more. They, they can't want get more. enough of it. Huh? Apparently. Okay. All, all, well, we, can, we can work on that. All, all three of them. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The optimist that I am. Yes. <laughs> so we're going to try to get some more stuff out there. So just in case you have forgotten, hi, I'm Michael. The uh, dulcet tones you hear on the other side. Lou. That's Lou. All right. Be nice to Lou. Yeah. All right. We have gathered together this week to tell you that you shouldn't ask questions you don't want answered. Yeah, <laughs> that's the funny thing about a question. Now, before we get uh, to get into some of the feedback that we have gotten, because we 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 have feedback, so before we dive into that, let's do something that's actually useful that kind of sets the stage for everything we're going to talk about. The conclusion, when all has been heard, fear God, keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good. Or evil. That is your Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. Easy one to remember, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, 14. Yeah, it's one of my favorite passages. And it's, it's a good one. It's a useful one. And Lou's microphone is trying to sink. See, we're doing, <laughs> see, we do a little bit of everything. We do hardware. <laughs> we do get. podcasting. We do Bible teaching. You name it, we He's, got it. That's what for, you bang on <laughs> yeah, it. I, it's my fault. I smacked it earlier as a, as a yeah. demonstration of things. Yeah. So let's actually get back to the Bible because that's what we're here for, right? So verse 13, the conclusion... The conclusion is the conclusion of the book. Solomon has tested everything. He has looked at the world through every possible lens. And you know what he's discovered? Not a bit of it is worth anything. Mm. I like Solomon. Solomon is my spirit animal in that regard. Because the more I see of the world, you know what I want less of? What they got. Mm-hmm. So the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. Why? Well, because Solomon tells you it applies to every person. To whom do you belong, Lou? To God alone. Why? He's creator of all. See, remember that when we get to one of our feedback questions in a minute, okay? He is the creator. Now, did God blink and forget you were there? Absolutely not. Which means he is the sustainer. Right, he knows every hair. This microphone is going to give me Every hair on our head. It keeps trying to sink. I'm telling you, it's going to drive me insane. So we're going to do two things. I'm going to keep talking and stalling while I try to get this microphone figured out. Uh, this is what happens when you take two months off is the microphones don't behave. So he is creator, he is sustainer, he is redeemer, he is all He's that king. good stuff and more. Yes, sovereign lord of creation, lord right. of all. So he is the almighty, right. Yahweh Sabaoth. So he has these things for everyone. Why does he have them for everyone? Verse 14, because God will bring every act to judgment. Now, how many people? All, all the people. All. How many acts? 
Every. All the acts. So yeah. not some of them, <laughs> not of the most acts. of them, yeah. not a few of them, all of them. This is one of those times when, well, well, actually, the Bible word for every here means every. Yeah, I, I love it when, when we, <laughs> yeah. we do a nice little word study. Well, every doesn't mean every. No, right now it does. Or every eternal means every. or forever, everlasting. No, no, it does. It does. In this situation, yeah. it does. If you don't believe me, read the rest of your Bible. It'll do, do you, good? you good. All right. So every act will be brought to judgment, which everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Why? This is your this is your Hebrews four in action. The word of God separates everything and brings all to God with whom we have to do. There are no hidden acts. Everything done in the darkness shall be exposed to the light. Yeah. This was um, John's summation of Jesus' teaching in John three, where he tells you what? The the godly people do what? They don't fear the judgment because their deeds are wrought in righteousness in Christ. Right. It is the wicked that fear the light because I don't want you to look at what I'm doing because then you'll see what I'm doing. And if you see what I'm doing, you'll actually know how horrible of a person I am. Yeah. The Christian doesn't fear that. You know why? Because the Christian's already looked in the mirror and said, yep. I'm a terrible person. Yep, what are they going to do? Call you awful? I already know that I'm awful. I don't need to be reminded. And if you do remind me, it doesn't hurt my feelings because I already know these things. I think that's an important distinction because sometimes people looking from the outside looking into mm -hmm. Christianity think that we're a bunch of hoity-toity people who don't know that we are fallen, sinful people without the regenerating work of Christ in our lives. This is, this is our caveman theology. Right. Yes. Booga booga. Me bad. Him good. Him good. It's very simple. <laughs> you, you can't get any easier than yeah. that. And that's the first thing. That's, that's why we don't fear this judgment. Because we've already seen the offense and first call of the gospel, which is you are awful. Yeah. At what? Everything. Everything. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> Your good deeds are rubbish. Right. Your righteousness that you find in yourself is useless. There's not a single solitary thing good that you bring to the meeting table with God by which you say, save me. You bring nothing. Right. He brings everything. It's an alien righteousness. Yes, and by his stripes yep. we are healed. Not by mine, Praise not God by my that. good works, but by his stripes. My good works are, an are a working out or an exhortation to the world of the good work that has already been done in me. It right. is not that which saves me. Never, ever, ever forget that, people. Ever, 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 ever. Right. Now. Right, and that's important because when we, when we look at the way that we live and, and, and the thoughts that cross our minds all the time, even as saved and regenerated people, we sometimes have angry thoughts. Somebody mm -hmm. cut you off and, you know, something. on the road or somebody, you know, attempted to attack your wife at a store. <laughs> uh, no story time on that today, children. No, no. <laughs> I mean, it just, it, you know, the things that go across your mind, you know that you need a yeah. redeemer. You really need to focus on Christ and his righteousness. Yeah. There's not a single doubt in there. Now, yeah. why do we tell you this story? Because granted, that's a short little devotion, um, something I like to break out at funerals. It's a good little reminder. Everybody and their uncle is staring at a casket, realizing, oh, we're all going to die. And it's a good little thing to remind them that, hey, after you die, that's not the end of all of this, but there's actually something coming beyond that. So why tell you this story? Well, it actually relates to our feedback. Hmm. Now, Lou has given, been given like like the teensy weensy little bit like he can barely see the gap in my fingers that i'm holding up right now yeah i'm squinting as, as to what yeah. our feedback is but what we did is we had um we had some intrepid listeners who said you know 
this was good. And they started sharing our information, which we encourage you to do that. Share this with everybody you know. Then um, going, people need to hear this. But when he did, they had questions. And he didn't know how to answer them. This is the point of, of what we do. So, we, he, sent, so yeah. he did the smart thing. He couldn't answer the questions, so he sent them back to me and said, hey, can you answer these? And what I told him was, rather than try to text these all back out or give you something that you can write down, you know what we'll do? We'll do an episode on this, and then you can share the episode and answer some questions. Awesome. Now, the first one, you ready? I'm ready. Comes from our episode way, way back when, I didn't even look at the date, it was so far way back when, on anthropology, the mm. doctrine of man. Now, in that episode, we covered who we are, where we come from, why we come from, and we uh, interacted with some of the uh, problems that that creates for, say, the BHI movement and how we actually understand ourselves as creations of God. The question that came out of that, and Lou's going to love this one so much, where do evolutionary ideas fit into this? So where does Cro-Magnon and Neanderthal and... Australopithecus and, you know, Lucy and all of this, where do they fit into our doctrine of anthropology, the different forms of humanity? And see, I love this question because okay. it has nothing to do with anthropology whatsoever. I, I would agree. I, I, you know, I've been reading articles um, ever since we talked about some of the questions. and yeah, That was the little heads up he got. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I, I've always always recognized, even in my study, early studies beyond this, is that there virtually is no, um, there's no record in fossils for the theory of evolution. We don't have animals transitioning from one species to the next. Not even a little bit. Um, There's nothing anywhere. And, but but yet this is being touted (laughs) as something it's factual. Yes. Now, the reason why I say this has nothing to do with your doctrine of anthropology is this goes back farther than anthropology. And if you go back through our little walk through systematic theology, which is what we did all this year, yeah. what you will see was what was our starting point doctrine? Lou, do you remember what our starting doctrine? If we're going to start with something, what did we start with? What was the first doctrine we explained? God. No, see? What you thought it? we did. I thought we did. How do we understand God? How do we know anything about God? Through the word. See, that's your first doctrine, the right. doctrine of the bibliology. Bible. Yeah, sorry. See, there is just there is just enough in general revelation, the world around me, the creation, my brain, the things that I see, to tell me that you know there is something out there. But I require special revelation. Either the prophet must come down from on high, or God Himself must descend upon the mountain. Something must happen. I got to get some stone tablets. I got to get a. I, I need something wherein God actually explains who and slash what He actually is to me. Without that, I can't understand who He is, what He's doing, why I'm here, or anything else in between. Yeah. So now that's a good place to start, though. I mean, from the scriptures. Always, always, always. Yeah. The cry of the Reformation, Adventus, mm-hmm. to the sources. Always. I don't care what you think. I care what the Bible says. Right. So when we talk about transitional forms of humanity, what we're actually looking at is what we call the interpretation of data or data, depending on which Star Trek fan you are. And then you can decide once you see the evidence, you look at it through a lens. Philosophically, when you get into the introductions of philosophy, this is what's known as a priori information. A priori information 
are the theoretical and logical assumptions that you bring to the table before you look at something. So case in point, two plus two is four. I don't care what the postmodernists say. Two plus two equals four. I don't come to that math equation neutral, though. I come to that math equation with suppositions that will enable me or disable me to understand and process that correctly. Hence, hence my dig at postmodernism. See, mm-hmm. I say 2 plus 2 is 4, and I don't have a problem with that. Why? Because my a priori assumptions are found, my foundational ideas are this. God has created. Therefore, I live in an ordered universe. There are laws of nature, laws of physics, laws of logic, and that includes laws of mathematics. That no matter what I do, if I take two objects and I combine it with another two objects, I now possess four four objects. That is also a law of language. Mm -hmm. The word two means something. T-W-O for English. Uh, The word four, F-O-U-R, means something in English. They represent numerical values that are constant. Why? Because this is how God has ordained it. Therefore, this is how I function. Therefore, 2 plus 2 equals 4. The postmodernist does not have God as his starting point. The postmodernist does not have foundational laws of logic, laws of mathematics. Everything is now relative. Mm -hmm. That is the curse and the scourge of postmodernism in the world. Therefore, to the postmodernist, 2 might mean 2 to you, but it might not mean 2 to me. So I need to get down to the baseline definitions of what you mean by two. What do you mean by plus? What do you mean by two again? What do you mean by four? It's a constant game of what we call equivocation. And it's a nightmare. Now, why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story so I can tell you this story. Did they dig a skeleton out of Africa that they named Lucy? Yes. Yes, they did. Have scientists looked at it? Evolutionary scientists looked at that skeleton and said, oh, that, that's a transitional form. I, I'll bet that's where we got from, you know, whatever A to whatever B. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to use all the technical words. One, I don't know them well enough. And two, I don't care to. Mm-hmm. So is that a form that demonstrates how we got from, you know, point A to point B somewhere along the scale? And they said, yes. And they stroked their skinny little goatees and they went, hmm, there it is. That's exactly what that is. Does that make it so? Oh, no. Definitely not. Why not? Well, they're starting from their perspective, not from the, you know, not, well, of course, they're not going to come from Scripture, but there are constants. There are things that that cannot change in in the laws of, you know, um, the laws of thermodynamics, right? Is that where we're going with this? Well, we can, we can go that way. But in a nutshell, their starting point is not God. Right. Their starting Therefore, point is them. the way they view those bones they pulled out of the ground mm-hmm. are skewed in a certain direction. Now, yeah. uh-oh, I just, Pro- saw, I just saw a red light on Lou's microphone. We'll see how long it lasts. <laughs> yeah, it's going to uh, shut me up really quick. Uh, yeah. Conversely, though, and this is the flip side of it, creationists... Bible-believing scientists have looked at those same bones and said, that's a monkey or an ape-like creature. Right. And why did they say that? Because they studied the bones. They studied where it was found. They studied the area around where it's found. And their starting point is that God created 
male and female. Therefore, there is no evolution. Therefore, there is no fitting Lucy into the timeline because, catch this, there is no timeline. There is nothing that they have to understand, nothing that they have to fit. There is only what they're working with based on scripture. So you take that and go, okay, yeah, but, but we know that there was a Neanderthal person. You're right, there was. And you know what he was? Catch this. A Neanderthal person was a person. Right. I think that gets back to the, uh, the Darwinistic belief that... Um, and this is why it fails, I think, is because Darwin believed that every species evolved out of one species, right? Yes. And so from, from that one... to you via the zoo. Right. Well, from that one species, over time, the theory is, is that many species developed. But that's not, that can't be demonstrated with the fossil records, as, as we all, well, as we know. Um, one of the... One of the issues is um, that uh, some believe that, that there was a self-replicating um, molecule that somehow began to mutate, and that's how we got all species. But there again, you know, this supposedly happened over billions of years. And what's, do you remember what the rule of, of, of science is? It has to be observable, observable and testable, testable and repeatable. repeatable. Evolutionary science is not science. It is... It's a hypothesis. Well, it's religion. It's, well, yes, I, you know, I definitely would agree with that. It's religion. And again, this is why I say deal with your a priori assumptions. Right, now, right. I mean, everybody has the presuppositions. Yes, they do. The goal of the Christian, though, is that your presupposition should be based on what? They should be based on Scripture. Scripture, God alone. If they're not, you have fallen into a worldly philosophy. What right. Paul told Timothy was idle chatter. And this is why the, uh, the conversation starts here. Because it starts with the idea that I interpret these things through the lens of Scripture, not the other way around. I don't have to figure out. This is where you get to your presuppositionalism and apologetics. Mm -hmm. I don't have to figure out, well, how does Carl Neumagnon and Neanderthal man fit into Genesis? Or how does Genesis fit into well, the evolutionary time frame? I don't have to figure that out. Right. You have to figure out how they fit into Genesis. And my answer is, there are people alive today that actually have trace DNA that goes back to Neanderthal man. They were a human being. I mean, we right. make jokes about this. Didn't everybody have that on their football team in high school? The, the dude whose skull was a little too thick and whose knuckles oh, sure. kind of dragged. Sure. I mean, I, we say this jokingly, but it, there's something to this. We are all different. Some of us are taller. Some of us are shorter. Some of us are rounder. Some of us are thicker. I mean, this is not an unusual thing. Where do we think this came from? Do we, do we just think that when God made us male and female, that was it? We just like, we were stamped out of mold and that was it? Look at the diversity of the animal kingdom. Look at the diversity of the, uh, what is it, the, the flora, plants and vegetables and fruits. And look at the diversity of bugs. Right. I mean, do we think that God took all that creativity, all that wisdom and ability and just went, all right, people, cha-chunk, stamp one, cha-chunk, stamp two, cha-chunk, stamp three. And that there wasn't the creativity, the blessings the giftings of God in different areas, in mm -hmm. the genetic makeup. I mean, what's the point of DNA having all the information that it contains if it doesn't do anything? Right, right. And, and one of the premises that a lot of evolution 
uh, people who hold to that worldview, uh, they believe that something came from nothing. Nothing. Which is a violation of scientific principle. Right. It's, a bi- it's called a biogenesis, the idea that there was nothing and then there was stuff. No! Right. This, this doesn't happen. Yeah. God created. This is our starting point. So how does evolution fit into it? It doesn't. I cannot start with a biblical understanding, work my way through Genesis and go, oh, there it is. There, there's where Neanderthal kind of gave way to Cro-Magnon, and there's where we climbed out of the goo, and there's where the monkeys, you know, climbed out of the trees and did this, or where, or where the, um, where the stuff climbed out of the ocean, or the primordial ooze got itself all together and was nice and organized. That doesn't exist. It's not there because God doesn't allow for it to be there. Because again, who did this? God did in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. When we forget that, we will go down all sorts of bizarre sideways, uh, you know, I don't know, lenses isn't the word, pathways. We will find ourselves hunting through the world's philosophies in an effort to come up with something Anything that may or, in many instances, may not make any actual sense. And when we do that, what we are left with is a world that is built not by God, but by us. And every time we end up there, do you know what we call that? That's called idolatry, children. And that is not the place we want to live. That is not the world we want to inhabit. That is not anything we want to deal with. What we want to do is start with Scripture, work ourselves out rightly. So again, when someone goes, well, how do you deal with evolution? No, no, no. How does evolution deal with Scripture? Because that's the flip side question. That's the question we don't ask. We don't challenge their assumptions. We allow them to challenge ours. We defend ours until the death, but we never actually challenge their assumptions. That's a mistake on our part. I need water. (laughs) (sighs) Well, the assumption is is that we use circular logic to prove everything and, and that they're using science, but as I indicated earlier, their premise is, is, it, it falls apart because none of the things that they espouse can be observed, and none of them are repeatable. No. So th- that's the foundation of scientific facts. We all have circular logic. When it comes to origins, you have to have some circle in your logic because you weren't there. Mm-hmm. We're all making an appeal to authority. My authority just happens to be the king of creation. Right. The evolutionist uh, authority happens to be a PhD who has you know, done some writing. They're still guessing. They're still assuming. They're still wondering. This is why every time you turn around, the earth gets a little bit older. And the universe gets a little bit older. Well, well, they need that in order to explain. When in doubt, sprinkle a little time on it. Add some more time and everything will be okay. They cannot explain things without time. That's one of the big issues with people who either believe that we have a, a, a young earth or an old earth. And the reason why people want it to be millions or even billions of years old is because there's this assumption that it takes that long for mm-hmm. evolution to, to develop. And, well, and if you and, follow and the evolutionary these... model, it does take that long. Right. But you don't have evidence of that length. You just no. don't. It just doesn't no. exist. It doesn't. What do I have in Scripture? I have a layout of where did everything come from? God created the heavens and the earth. Where did people come from? God made them male and female. 
out of the dust of the ground, out of the rib of Adam. I mean, if, now, let's just be honest. If you just heard, if you just heard me say that and your thought was, that's ridiculous. You mean amphibious things crawling out of the ocean to stand on the beach and go, I like it out here. I'm going to walk. Right. That's not ridiculous. Why did they develop lungs? If you live in the water, why would you develop lungs? Right, because there's no air in the water. I, mean, I don't need them. Right. Did someone sit around and go, hey, Dave, I got an idea. Sacks of moist tissue in our chest filled with air. And Dave went, it'll never work. What's air? <laughs> right. What's air? Well, it's the stuff that we can breathe. Why would we do that? Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't we do that? Let's, all right, you start working on that. Spread the word. Our great, 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 and then they couldn't walk yet because they hadn't worked on legs. Right. So, like, Gary is laying on the beach now, like, hey, Steve, legs. What we need are legs. And then we can get off this stupid beach, and then we can go get some food. Yeah. This, it's, it's really good. It's this real doesn't good. make any sense. Really good. And, and it, w- why could we eat food? Right. You do realize that if I cut your stomach, right, that your digestive acid will kill you. So why did I develop a stomach? Right. Well, to hold the digestive acid. But why did I do that? Right. If I don't have the digestive acid, I don't need the stomach. But if I have the digestive acid without the stomach, I die. Right. There's an intelligent design to yeah. the they, people they have, we are today. The number of things in the human body in order for it to function that had to exist at the exact same time, it right. can't happen through an evolutionary process. There's no reason for it to happen in an evolutionary process. This doesn't yeah. make any sense. Now, again, I don't even need to attack this on this level. I want to attack your assumptions. What ground do you stand on? Because if I'm not Luke 646, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You know what we need to remind the unbelieving world of more often? You're standing on sinking sand. Please, for the love of your soul, move to the rock. Now we've taken an argument about evolution, and we've turned it into what? Discipleship foundational issues, evangelism, getting people to contemplate who they are, what they are, and what they are living for. That should be the goal, and it starts when you view things through a scriptural lens. I think, you know, some of, not, not all evolutionists hate God. No. But they, but they are all shaking their fist at him. <laughs> right. Well, well, that's that's a presuppositional idea that yeah. that we agree upon is yes. that they really do. And they need shake to be challenged on this when this right. conversation gets to come up. And look, and I've had this conversation with believers who are evolutionists. I didn't call them dirty names. I didn't call them heretics. I didn't tell them they were going to rot in hell. Mm-hmm. But I do challenge the underlying assumptions and starting points. On how did we get here? Why do you think the way that you do? And you know what? If they want to do that with me, I welcome it because I want that. I want my assumptions and my foundations challenged because now we're actually having a legitimate conversation. And I can evaluate who I am, what I am, and what I'm living for and why I'm doing it. This should be the goal of every bit of discipleship is getting you to contemplate the 
big questions. Yeah. What is that question? Is yeah. That big Not big? the little ones. Yeah. I, I, I don't care what you had for breakfast. I want to deal with the big ones. How do you see yourself in the light of God and his judgment? Right. How do you understand the work of God in eternity past? How do you understand the work of God in humanity's history, in your history? How do you see the hand of God at work in your life and in your nation? When you start to contemplate these ideas, now things start to get big. Now they start to get crystallized as to what's important and why we're going in the directions we're going in. These are the things I want to deal with with people, and these are the things you should want people to deal with. And yes, I'm pointing at you, computer people. Mm. It, it Luke and Vouch, I am pointing. He's pointing, yes. The yes. computer screen represents you. So when I point at the computer, I am pointing at you. So, now, let's put a pause on this because we could probably stay here for the end of time. And we may come back to this in the, in the coming weeks. We might, might make a little note that this might be something we want to dive into a little bit more and actually devote an entire show to. But we did have a second piece of feedback that I think is instructive for this. Because I am making a big deal out of getting you to think big thoughts. Why? Because we have a big God. And we have a big salvation. And we have a big Savior. And we have all these big things. But the working out of these things is not always big. And this is where we get that whiplash, what, uh, what we call in psychology cognitive dissonance. Mm. Where the things that I know are the things that I'm convinced that I know do not line up with the things that I'm seeing. And your brain just kind of cracks. And you either will reject what you know or reject what you're seeing. You want an example of this? It's um, it Basically, every Bigfoot testimony is a cognitive dissonance in action. When people are going, I didn't believe in Bigfoot, and then there he was. And see, that's what it's going to take for me to believe in Bigfoot. I'm going to actually have to see the furry bugger like on the table and with a DNA test because otherwise I'm not going to. Now, if I ever saw a Bigfoot walking across, I would have one of those cognitive dissonance moments. Right. Because I'm going to have to decide, do I trust what I know about society and what I know about nature or do I actually believe the eight-foot furry thing walking in front of me? There's an example of a cognitive dissonance. When we actually understand Christianity rightly, the big cognitive dissonance that people have is, I'm thinking big thoughts. I'm having big conversations. I'm digging deep into the motivations of my life and my family. We're doing, we're doing all of this. And then you know what I do tomorrow? I get up, and I drink my coffee, and I go to work, and I hate it. And then I come home. And I talk to my kids, and I talk to my wife, and I have dinner, and I go to bed. And you know what I do the next morning when I wake up? Same thing. I drink my coffee, and I go to work, and I hate it. It's like, where's the, where's the big stuff in my life? And the answer is, it may be nowhere. And that was one of the questions. Well, it wasn't a question. It was kind of a question, kind of a statement. When we, uh, when we discussed sufficiency... And we were talking about stewardship. When we discussed the sufficiency of Scripture, we, were, we went on a little, ta- a little tangent on stewardship mm-hmm. and defined by the Bible. And one of the things that was pointed out was, would crop rotation be an example of early human stewardship? Wow, that's an interesting question, but I... And I... Well, I loved it because I'm like, yes! No. That's, that's, that's pretty big picture, too. It is, and this is, but this is why this is so important. This is, this is one of my favorite um, 
I have a bachelor's degree in social studies education, which is a, uh, a fancy way of saying I was supposed to be a history teacher. <laughs> and I, I will never forget in my uh, Western Civ class, you're not allowed to have Western Civ anymore because it's racist, but when I, when I did my Western Civ class, we were going through the Middle Ages. And the, uh, the Middle Ages are affectionately known in history as the Dark Ages, the period from the fall of Rome, traditionally 476, so we round off to around 500, to around the birth of the Reformation and the, really the printing press becomes the explosion of knowledge that becomes the High Middle Ages or the Late Middle Ages, which mm. we like High Middle Ages because Late Middle Ages just sounds like you can't count. It's like, is it middle or is it late? Exactly. So about 500 to 1500 are the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. And when you're going through this period of history, it's kind of funny because if you're not studying a monastery or a war or a clergy, there ain't a whole lot going on. Like, that's it. Some kings are fighting. They're, they're besieging each other's castles. The clergy are burning some witches. And that, that's history. But when you get into the secular aspects of the history, we start talking about like technological innovations of the Middle Ages. And they're awesome because it's things like we stopped using oxen to pull our plow carts and we started to use horses. Wow. Because horses are actually, pound for pound, they're stronger. They, are, um, they have more endurance and they're better suited to the job. Didn't I mean, know. oxen just muddy the field and they make a mess and they're unruly. You ever tried to get ox to do something? There's a reason why being called a dumb ox is an insult. Okay. Oxen are a pain in the rear end. Yeah. Horses are actually trainable. You could teach them to go to the end of the field and turn around without like 17 whips and cursing and, you know, the whole nine yards. <laughs> so this was a big technological innovation. Like, we can use horses. The other big technological innovation was until the Middle Ages, humanity traditionally, now this isn't true in every culture everywhere, but overall, there was what was known as the two-field system. Okay. So you planted your grains, and then the next year, you would let that field sit empty, or what's known as fallow. Mm -hmm. The following year, you would plant your, um, your bean or your pea because they help restore the soil. Nitrogen, yeah. And then you would be able to plant your grains again in the following year, and you would have to rotate your fields like this so you didn't starve to death. It, 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 it's a lot of planning. You can't, be, you can't mess this up or else we all die of scurvy or something. Well, in the midst of the Middle Ages, they came up with this technological innovation. Crop rotation, huh? Well, that was their crop rotation. It was, you know, grains, empty, okay. beans, okay. grains. Got it. That was the two-field system. Well, what some genius thought up of was what was known as the three-field system, where we actually divide the field, and we put on one-third of it, we put our grain. On the other third of it, which was, where, which was grain last year, this year it's our bean or our pea, because that restores the nitrogen to the soil that the grains take out. And the part that was the green or the pea last year is fallow. And I may not have that exactly right. It's been a while since I've looked into this. Now... This sounds insane, but that was a big deal because now instead of half the field sitting empty, only a third of the field is sitting empty. That's an improvement. That's, a, that's, that's huge. Right. Fewer people are starving to death. There you go. Now, the dude that came up with this idea, there, you know why there's a reason why I'm saying the dude who came up with this idea? I don't know who the dude is. We, neither do I. And you know what? Neither does anybody else. You know why? Because it was probably one of those innovations where some dude said it out loud and everybody went, we're oh. all morons that we have not thought of this before. That's funny. 
Now, I say that because was dude who came up with this a brilliant man? Maybe. Probably not. Who knows, yeah. Yeah, I have no earthly idea. He was the first guy to come up with the idea, hey, we can use more field if we just do it like this. So, is this, though, a grand innovation? Well, in terms of today, no. In terms of anything. Yeah. Like, we didn't write his name down. Like, you know who Gutenberg is. That's the printing press guy. You know who Edison is. That's the telephone guy. Benjamin Franklin with the key and the kite and the electricity. You know who Tesla is. You know, right. all of these grand things and advancements in human history. One of the biggest advancements in the culture of Western civilization was the idea that we can rotate our crops and use 15% more of our field. Thousands, maybe millions of people did not starve to death because of that idea. Was it a big deal? Big idea? Yeah. In that regard, but in in terms of, I'm just going to plant like this much more peas in this field. No, it's not that big of an idea. Yeah. But it does something for us. It had repercussions, though. Yes, it does. It affected a lot. This, that is how day in and day out discipleship works. That is how simple basic acts of dealing with your life day in and day out to the glory of God work in a Christian worldview. It wasn't massive, but it was functional. It wasn't earth-shattering, but it was... And the reason why I'm saying it wasn't earth-shattering is because odds are it wasn't a dude in a village. Odds are it was people around Europe and throughout the world you know, thinking through these things, processing at the time, and it starts to catch on, and it travels from town to town, and, you know, there was some old ornery dude in Scotland by the time the idea got to his village. He'd be like, I've been doing that for 40 years. You people are morons. You know, there was, there's always that dude. Mm-hmm. And so it's basic. It's simple. It's people living day in and day out, but look what they have given to us. Mm-hmm. You're alive if you are any descendant of any Western culture you're alive more than likely because they thought of a change in their crop rotation and to use horses instead of oxen yeah, to plow their fields. Sustain larger people. Yes. Larger groups of people. Yeah, and odds are your family exists simply because mm-hmm. they pulled this off. Yeah. Wasn't grand. Wasn't great. It was simple. It was basic. And the farmer that had the idea didn't wake up the rest of his life like a king. You know what he did? He went out and planted his crops he, he, and He whatever, hitched up rotated. the horses and he dug the field and he harvested the wheat and he planted the beans and he let the grass grow and he did all of these things day in and day out. And I have no idea who he is, but do you know who does know who he is? Yeah. God does. God does. And if he was in Christ, God will give him his reward in full. It was a providential idea, though. I mean, it is, absolutely. Because God is the beginning of all wisdom. Right. And God rewards that faithful servant, right. not because we know his name, but because God he, knows his name. Because he knows his name. Yep. And because if Christ knows his name, he is a faithful son, heir of the kingdom. And that is good news. And that you want to know why, for a thousand years of the Dark Ages, why most peasants could just get up, never leave more than a seven-mile circle around their house, raise their children have 10 to 12 children born in order to get one of them to survive to adulthood? Uh-oh, loose horns, Miss Paving. I mean, think about that. Can you imagine having to have 10 live births in order to get one child to adulthood? Oh, my goodness. That was the world for over a 1,000 years in Europe. 
Why did they go through this? And how could they endure that? Because there's a vision and a life beyond here that they're looking towards. Because you're not going to do that unless you're something else. This is why every culture, even the pagan ones, have some concept of religion. Some concept of God. Some concept of an immortal soul. Because they have to. One, it's part of general revelation. But two, you need to get moving during the day. You need something to carry you on through the mundane. Because right. think right. about this. Every great human being did mundane things. This is why I don't get into celebrity culture. Like, oh, they're so wonderful. He's such a wonderful actor. They're such an amazing singer. They're so beautiful. They go to the bathroom. They have to clip their toenails. (laughs) They have nose hair and flatulence. Oh, my. See, now you're suddenly like, ew. Exactly. They're People. They're human beings. Yep. Just like you, just like me, made in the image of God. They need the gospel, so do you. And they need to understand their place in this world from a biblical and Christian lens. Just that simple. And if we lose that, we haven't just lost this. We haven't just lost that, you know, we can't make a difference. What we've lost is the very core of what it means to be a human made in the image of God. Yeah. We've lost the, the conclusion when all has been heard is... Right. You tied it right back fear into God, that, right? Keep his commandments because yeah. he will bring every act to judgment. Yeah. It's our duty. Whether it is good or evil. As a human being, as a man created in the image of God, it's our duty to follow our creator, to listen to what he has said. Not, we are not the measure of all things, mm-hmm. like Protagoras would say. Exactly. You know. So we think our big thoughts. We wonder our big wonders. We do our grand work of discipleship, but we do it in the day in and day out of a simple life, lived unto the glory of God, knowing that he is accomplishing and that our grand ideas aren't going to be necessarily grand in our world, Mm -hmm. but they're grand because they're offered in God's kingdom. See, the thing is, is we don't even know when these ideas are... Exactly. ...our big grand ideas. That's the beauty of it. We wake up and say, why don't we divide our field into three (laughs) and, and do it this way? And you're just like... Dude. Yeah. Yeah, we have no... And, and I don't think the person that d- designed that had any idea of no. how it would affect culture no. and hey, civilization. No. But because of the providence of God, because of the hand of God working, it works. Yeah. And, and, and why did he figure that out? I mean, did you know, he, he was growing something one day and decided, oh, man, this must not have the same nutritional content. I wonder if I switch the ground... There is no telling. This is was it an aha moment or yeah. was it just yeah. did the beans and the wheat kind of creep over? You have no idea, but you know what? It worked. It worked. A- and it probably saved millions of lives. And again, there are probably people alive today that are here simply because of that innovation right. in crop rotation. Yep, your ancestors survived because yeah. of it. Somehow. You didn't starve to death. Go team. Mm-hmm. But again, because people live day in and day out simple lives with a big picture in mind. What have we learned today, children? God is the arbiter of everything. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Not sometimes. Always. God is the designer, regardless of what we think, and we need to remember that in all of these things. In Christ, we glorify and honor God in our everyday lives. Right. Notice, not when things are awesome in our everyday lives, but in our everyday lives. So you getting up, drinking your coffee, and going to work is part of how you glorify and honor God. Do it unto his glory. Know that that is the place that he has for you. And know that you can think your big thoughts and do your grand work in the simple things of life. This is one of the reasons why I stress discipleship so much. 
Just like dude doesn't realize that dividing my crops might save millions of people from starving to death, I don't know the impact that my discipleship towards my children will have. I don't know what impact my love of neighbor will have. I don't know what impact my thinking and discipling myself will have. But I know that I'm called to do it by God, and I know that he works out all things and will bring these acts to fruition. Therefore, I offer them, and I live them, and I trust in what he's doing. Praise God. Did we leave anything out? No, I think that was pretty thorough. All right, so if you have feedback on our feedback info at practicaltheologyministries.com or you can leave them as comments on the podcast. I actually see them and look at them. Uh, we go from there. Any questions on anything, send them to us. Uh, hopefully a more regular schedule coming up. We are kind of making sense of life again. Maybe some new content coming in more often. We will let you know. I got a trial run trying to set up on that to- tomorrow, hopefully, and we'll see what happens. Cross your fingers. So, if you have a chance to give us a review, please give it to us. Share it. The reason we do this is because we think it's useful. If you think it's useful or beneficial, share it with your friends and neighbors. And if they want to complain, don't tell them to argue with you. Tell them to take it up with us. We love to fight with people. It's what we do. We're here for you <laughs> to help. All right? And until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good.